pretty special. Yeah, Dan Fouts definitely was pretty special. You know, it's pretty special getting a chance to talk with you on a weekly basis here at the RSP Cast Scout Talk. We got another edition of it. We're going to be doing it, you know, every other week on Wednesdays. And we've got a good show for you um, ahead with Russ Landy. Um, and what it's going to be about this week is we're going to ha- talk about what type of training camp buzz is worth paying attention to. What are some things that maybe we can see that gets a little bit overhyped in, um, in the media, as well as the process of picking up free agents. You know, what, what really, you know, what's notable about it that, that fans should know as well as are there certain additions that have a little bit more heft to it than others? I'm thinking like Trey Sermon who got cut and, but the, uh, the 49ers apparently were dealing with the Eagles for a possible trade. And the fact that he was added to the active roster right away, as opposed to like, say Josh Gordon, who was put on the practice squad, um, you know, with the Titans, is there that much of a difference? No difference at all. We're going to, we're going to talk about all these types of things and more this week. And, and Russ, Let's just lead into training camp buzz because, you know, that's pretty much over. We're now, you know, fan expectations are sky high for the rookies who are like, who've made a wow play every day in camp. I think of Romeo Dubs, the receiver for, yep. from Nevada, Nevada who Aaron yep. Rodgers said that. But then I then I hear stuff like a week before camp, you know, the, the media is saying, well, will Sammy Watkins make the team because he's on the, you know, he – we haven't seen much of him. He's got an injury history, you know, he, you know, when he's healthy, he's good, but that hasn't been a lot since 2014. Suddenly after all of that, wow, in the last week of camp, you hear Aaron Rodgers going, well, if these young rookies, he didn't mention anybody name, but if these young rookies can't, can't be on the same page with me and keep making mistakes, you know, in practice, they're not going to get much playing time. And suddenly Sammy Watkins is like getting lots of reports from beat writers talking about how he's making plays in camp and, and in scrimmages. Um, and lo and behold, he makes the team, of course. So I just wonder, you know, that's a good example of, of what I'm talking about. Where is it? Where is the buzz just like just fluff or, or maybe not as meaningful in the way that it seems to be reported? And where where is it a little more meaningful? Well, firstly, I'll say that the buzz you hear during the off season is almost stuff you can throw away because they're not in pads and it's basically just a glorified walkthrough every day. So there's going to be two or three players that just crush it because there's no hitting. And a lot of the time, the smartest players do the best because from the day they get there, they have it. They, they got the playbook in their head. They're ahead of some guys who just may need a month or two to sort of get it all in their head. So anything during OTAs, you can almost throw it all out. Yes. Um, e- even the coach, even if you were a coach, talk about them, you have to take it with a grain of salt because it's still unpadded and they're not doing meeting rooms of like the, the type of stuff that you get during training camp and during the season. It's, it's so watered down that you have to be cautious. Now, when you get to training camp, the biggest thing you have to be fearful of is, and it's not to knock them, but are reporters who attend practice who come out saying Joe Smith is going to be the star when in reality, and you've been at live practices just like I have many times, <laughs> Joe Smith, you may have seen six reps yeah. in the entire practice because you're trying to see everything. So when you start hearing a reporter talk about it, but when the coach is constantly asked every day, 
who stood out, who stood out, and he never mentions that kid. That tells you that the hype from the reporter, and it's not that the reporter is trying or doing a bad job. It's just there's only so many eyes you can focus on the field, whereas the coaches are watching every practice, and they're watching every play like four or five times. Yeah. So they're looking at every single rep of every single guy. Um, you also have to be really cautious of when you hear people talk about O-line or D-line, and they're not in pads. Yeah. It's like, hold on now. O-line, D-line, it doesn't matter what they do when they're just right. I mean, don't get me wrong. They can be. You can gain a lot in terms of teaching when they're not in pads, in terms of technique and footwork, but you can't grade a player and how they are going to perform until you've seen them in pads, and then especially until you see them in a game. Because the game, the games, we joke about it all the time, and I, and I don't mean to knock media, but I know scouts talk all the time about how many guys make the Hall of Fame during practice, and as soon as the lights are on, you literally after one game, you're like, yep, he ain't going to be here. And there's a lot of guys like that. Every year, you find a guy, undrafted, OTAs, he's crushing it, training camp, he's crushing it. The first game, he's just awful. And you're like, gosh, we got our hopes up all offseason – because this guy was killing it. And it's just, it's a different thing when you A, get to watch every snap and B, in games. Games are a different a different breed. And very few people take the time, even those that I respect in the business. If you're not with a team, it's rare when you're going to watch a preseason game film and really grind it. Look at every player, every snap. You're going to watch the play and say, oh, did he do something? Did he do something? The one guy I'm looking at, as opposed to, hey, I'm watching, perfect example, I'm watching, say, the Rams, and Keir Thomas made the team as an undrafted free agent at Florida State. If you're grading every snap he plays in the game in the preseason, you're going to get a feel for him. But if you're just watching the game to see if anybody jumps out and he only makes one play, well, he's not going to grab your attention. Yeah. So I think that's part of it. It's not that they're not doing their job. It's just their job is not to grade and evaluate every player yeah. every snap. Yeah, their 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 job is to to ask questions and to get information from other people, and then maybe do some level of research to see if the question they're asking is going to make sense for what is important about the team, as well as what readers want to hear. You know, there's oh, a combination no of both. So, and that makes sense. And I, you know, I love the idea that you know that my buddies Sigmund Bloom and Cecil Lamy talk about with drum beats that you want to develop drum beats from OTAs to mini camp to training camp and then to you know and then I say that's great but you know they're just drum beats until you get a rhythm for the player so you have to have enough layers of like beats stacked together to actually have something sensible with it and and there's a lot of layers to that I mean we look at a guy like Skylar Thompson you know Skylar mm -hmm. Thompson had a fantastic preseason and it started off that, you know, the first drum beat, you know, we'll use an example of him. The first drum beat that I heard was he latched on to Dan Marino when Dan Marino offered to any help that he could get and has and worked with Dan Marino before he even hit OTAs, which in contrast to Drew Locke, when Peyton Manning offered, Drew Locke waited until two years later when Teddy Bridgewater was threatening his job to reach out back out to Dan Marino. Um, so that, but that's a small layer. That means nothing until... He starts to show up and make plays in OTAs to where you're hearing that, at least on the field, that consistently Skylar Thompson stood out compared to even the starters, at least that he was having good days. He was stacking yep. good decision days. And even that's not that meaningful. 
until you get to training camp. And now he's completing passes, throwing touchdowns, completing bigger, aggressive targets. And then, and then you're like, okay, fine. Maybe he'll get a shot to really get some meaningful time in the preseason, which he did. And he looked very good. And then yep. if you grade every throw or you look at a lot of the throws, you'll see someone like JTO um, Sullivan, who does his show, you know, the QB school. And he devoted a show to, to Thompson and graded a lot of his throws and talked about, here's some impressive layered throws that I saw, which it matched what he did at Kansas State. And all that's great, but he's still, like, at best, the third-string quarterback. They got rid of Reed Sinnett, who was the preseason leader the year before in the NFL in passing and was performing well enough in Philly to actually threaten something. So there was something meaningful with that, too. So we're stacking drum beats, And then I think the final drumbeat that really made it worthwhile was when Mike McDaniels, at the end of the preseason, says – Obviously, he's going to make it very hard on our team because he's done enough that we're going to have to do something different and keep a quarterback. Normally, when you, you keep two, if you're going to keep three, that doesn't mean, well, we think we see, you know, we see something in him. It's more like we definitely see something in him and we we don't want to lose that. We don't want to risk losing that. And we want to, this is a guy that we think we can grow with to some level. Maybe he could be our backup. And, and so, and within short order. And I think the key thing that he said, Russ, as an example of that was not only did he play well in terms of statistical performance, but every day in practice, every game, he put other players in the right positions on the field and didn't have any procedural errors. And when a, when someone makes that statement, that's the lock statement right there that says, yep. not only did what the reporters noticed were true, but what the reporters wouldn't notice, exactly. most likely, yes. was very much important to us. And, and I think that that's an example of a good drumbeat story all the way through. Oh, I think there's no doubt. And I think... If you were to ask the Dolphins people now, I would guarantee you they regret not having the sort of the, the foresight after seeing him in camp and saying, we really like what we see. We're very confident. We're not playing him in the preseason. I'll bet you they wish now that they had said, you know what? It's a done deal. He's our third guy. We don't have to see any more right now. We're going to we're gonna say he's got an ankle and not play him in the preseason <laughs> so we can put him on the PR. Because then... They could slip him through, no problem. But now, and hey, I get it, that you want to see him play because, like I said, a lot of guys are Hall of Famers in practice. But he showed right away. I mean, who knows if he'll ever become right. a starter that I think you and I think there's a possibility he's got the talent to be. But 100%, to me, he showed, worst case, he's going to be on a roster somehow, some way for the next probably five, seven years. Yeah. Now, whether that translates to him becoming a high-end backup, a starter, we don't know. But, yeah, he's a perfect example of, especially for a quarterback, because quarterbacks can look great in the offseason because especially guys like him that are smart, that do everything right, they're going to they're gonna look like models during OTAs because very little of it is challenging. It's basically like almost like, a, like I said, a glorified walkthrough. So they're going to look great. But then you put the lights on, training camp, there's a little more hitting, things are going, defenders are really trying to make plays. He stood out there. And then in actual games against opponents, that to me, he is the ultimate example of a guy who just kept growing and growing. And every step of the way, 
proved himself. I'm, I can't wait to see how he does. Yeah, I, I, I feel the same way. And then like on, on the opposite end of that spectrum, and I wouldn't even say opposite, on a, on a slightly different angle of that perspective, I think Romeo Dubs is a great example of a guy who in training camp, and once a day he made a wild play. That's what Aaron Rodgers said earlier. Got everybody excited. And then you watch him in the San Francisco game. And when I watched those plays with him, what I noticed was he made a he made a vertical catch that was a couple of vertical catches got wide open. And when he gets behind somebody, that's what he's going to do. That's what he did at Nevada. When he was asked to make contested plays, especially in, with his back to the quarterback in the vertical game, his p- body positioning was always a bit of an issue. Like, could he... Could he gauge when to get his body position to make an easier catch or make a catch where the defender had to play through his body? And he couldn't do it against San Francisco. He had a ball ripped away from him and intercepted on a play. And he fought the ball in a couple of plays where his hands positions just were not great. And he caught them, but they were a little more difficult. He made them more difficult than they needed to be. And then, so you look at that and I go, well, that's the same guy. Does it mean that he that he can't play? No, he, I think he just, to me, he's 90% of the way there from just that aspect of the game. Then there's the conceptual aspect that we talked about, which is knowing the route adjustments, reading defenses that are going to be way different than what he saw at Nevada on a regular basis. And, or if they're the same, the, the kind of craftsmanship that defenses, opposing defenders have to disguise what's going on is far more um, savvy than what you're going to see against Fresno State. And so I think that's where you started to see some of that where Aaron Rodgers is, look, you know, these guys are going to have to step up the mental side. And Devontae Adams had a great interview um, this this year talking about training camp and saying, he said, it wasn't the physical part to me that was difficult. It took me three years to really actually figure out, A, how to study defenders and realize it wasn't about studying every play that a defensive hat back had. It was about learning the coverages, understanding what coverages were employed, and then just looking at to see if the guy played man-to-man. And if he did, knowing what he tended to try to do on certain looks. And then it was all about me, learning to read leverage, understanding how to react to it, and being good with my game. Because I don't even know the names of the players I face anymore. And I know there's some great players, but I don't think, oh, Xavier Howard is facing me. I think the number that he is and just then I start looking at the coverages and that's it. And he said, and it took that mental side of the game to read coverages that took me so long for me to get to where I am. And I think he's a great example of where Romeo Dubs is starting down that path. If he even ever gets to the end point that Devontae Adams reached. Well, two things that that I think you make a point of first. First off, I think the general public and even many in the media, make it seem like, oh, a receiver, it's an easy transition because all they have to do is catch the ball and make plays. And people don't understand. I mean, every position, it's a jump. But especially for receivers, the jump of, in college, oftentimes it's you line up. You only have one route, or maybe there's a switch if it's man or zone. Very rarely is it the complexity that they're going to face at the NFL where there's six, seven, sometimes as many as nine or ten options based on not just man or zone, but proximity of closest defender, proximity of second defender, alignment on the field, all the different things that go into it, that in and of itself 
makes it difficult for a receiver to transition and be able to make an impact as a rookie. A lot of guys that are college receivers and really college players have no grasp of how to watch film, period. They have to be trained in that. So you add those two things together, it's a stunning thing to me to have any receiver come in as a rookie. And unless the team really can tailor it to where he doesn't have to do much mentally, it's really hard to make an impact as a rookie. And the other thing that I would say for Dubs is that, that has to have you sort of excited as the Packers is, yes, there may be things you saw in terms of the contested catches and, and some of the routes not being as precise as you'd like, but the biggest fear most NFL scouts have with receivers, with DBs, with running backs, is when they get to the NFL level and you put them in camp, I can teach the technique. If I have to refine this or refine that, right. not that it's 100%, but usually I can improve it. But at least they're looking at him not saying, uh-oh, he's not the athlete we thought he was. Right. Because that's your biggest fear. When you bring a receiver in, everything you're doing is based on college film, pro day, testing. And you're like, okay, I think he's quick enough. I think he's fast enough. I think he can avoid guys and run good routes. But until they're out there, and especially in pads and training camp, you're not 100% sure that twitch is there. So at least with him, you're saying, okay, I see the twitch. I see the stride. I see that this kid athletically, he's not out of place in the NFL. Now, will those other issues, the, the, the hand positioning, knowing how to box and sort of box out guys, knowing when to use his body to shield and how to do all those things, will that improve to the point where he can actually be a contributing receiver or will he never improve and wash out of the league in two years? We don't know. But at least they're going in now saying, you know what? We know athletically we're on the right track. And that's what you're hoping for. Because there are guys that show up at training camp or even OTAs, and a month in, you're like, well, we liked a lot about what we saw him, but athletically, it's just not there, and we can move on. Because no matter how much he works, technically, he's just not a good enough athlete. Yeah, without doubt. And I think there there's a good transition with this as we go in from preseason and start continue talking about preseason a bit, but go into, like, free agents and adding free agents because a guy that i've talked about in the past week because i know a lot of rsp re readers have been asking about him is trey sermon because i had trey sermon my number one back heading into last year in terms of from the draft class and obviously he you know elijah mitchell took over and was the player for that team and this is a conversation i've had with a number of people and have i've developed this working theory as to what kind of went down here because when I first scouted Trey Sermon pre-draft, I had said he was, you know, he, he got my top score, but I also listed bad, worst possible fit and worst possible fit was San Francisco. And then, and the reason I had though was a different rationale. My reason wasn't necessarily outside zone, but outside zone was part of the issue because he doesn't have great speed and San Francisco from what I observed with Kyle Shanahan was Kyle Shanahan, I believe from what I've seen from him in Cleveland and Atlanta, especially Atlanta, and then early in San Francisco, when he would when they would bring in a back via free agency, they were pet players that he liked. And they were Tevin Coleman and Jarek McKinnon. And when you look at Tevin Coleman, he played outside zone in Indiana, but the but he was really best suited from my observation as a gap runner 
He hit creases really hard. He was really fast. He had no nuance with cutbacks. He didn't have great footwork to really adjust to, to leverage of defenders. It was more like hit it, hit it hard. If it's open, he could be gone. Jarek McKinnon, option quarterback at Georgia Southern. First started with the, with the Vikings. Had to refine his game a bit, but even then he was never really a great zone runner, at least inside zone. And outside zone, if he had a crease, man, great athlete. I mean, people loved him as an athlete. Scouts loved his athletic ability. Well, those were the two guys that Kyle Shanahan brought in as free agents and wanted to use. And neither of them really worked out great there due to injury. Um, and then Raheem Mostert, also a guy who was more of a gap oriented guy, but he had some nuance. He was probably the best of the backs they had. He and Matt Breda had more nuance and could operate a lot of different things. But he loves backs who, when if you nickname Elijah Mitchell Drano because he hits the hole hard and fast, to me, that's a positive, but it's also kind of a pejorative when you look at his game and go, the footwork isn't there. He's not a nuanced cutback guy. But when you have George Kittle, Trent Williams, those big receivers, and the offensive line that you have, you can run toss, you can run outside zone, you can run some gap plays too, and you don't have to ask your running back to do much in terms of manipulating blockers into defenders. Nope, just see it, cut, and attack. Exactly, and that's simple. Well, Trey Sermon didn't come from that. Trey Sermon came from a, how do I manipulate the linebacker and safety into the blocker where's the cutback lane and how do i set that up so i think what happened is i heard someone a, a coach talk about saying that well trey sermon's got a lot to work on you know and he doesn't have juice and and i think well no he's got enough juice there's a lot of things he understands but the the, the but in hindsight what you see is he didn't fit what kyle shanahan wanted and i was a little more optimistic about him after the draft because a they traded up for him B, they drafted um, Trey Lance, and I thought, and I projected the idea of, well, maybe they'll run more inside zone because they could use Trey, you know, they can use that zone read type of, you know, play yep. scheme, and they'd have a little bit more of an inside presence. And Shanahan did see how his running game really took off in Atlanta when they tried to ramrod uh, Coleman in there. It didn't work. Had to run gap plays with him to get him on the field. And then they leaned on Devonta Freeman inside during that Super Bowl run. But it turns out that that was, I'm guessing that that was probably overruled by the coaching staff. That's if, or they said, listen, Freeman's our best guy. Our line's good inside. We got Alex Mack. You know, we've got, yeah, we, we don't have a choice. This we don't is have what a, we got to do. This is what yeah. we got to do. I understand what you like and that, and he could be a huge weapon for us, but Freeman's got to be the guy we lean on right now. And I think that maybe what Shannon's like, well, now I'm the coach. This is, I think we have the tools and I can develop the horses to do this outside running game. And that's where we have Sermon who then, you know, this summer works with Dalvin Cook in the off season, tries to gain a little more speed, but then you watch some reps with him. And there's a lot of reps where not much was there, but there were also some reps where you see him just, he's learned to the speed of instinct where the cutback is, where the linebacker is starting to show his helmet, and he would slow down to to make a cutback, and then real, and you can see him speed right back up and go, oh, he's thinking, he's having to think his way through trying to do something he's not used to doing, and he ends up cutting the final final range of things. The Eagles were trying to trade for him, apparently reported by um, Kyle Posey, who's a beat writer in San Francisco, um, and 
he ends up on on the active squad for the the Eagles, who run a lot of inside zone. So yeah, and I and I sort of look at it like I I think the 49ers thought, well, he's a powerful kid, he can break tackles, and I think they thought, well, if we can just sort of change him a little bit, which is make him a little less worried about figuring out where the holes are and just follow what we're doing, just sort of slide. And when you see it, just hit it. And I think they thought it's not often that hard. Now I'm not saying it's easy, but some coaches view that as a, as his system as being simpler, quote unquote, for a running back. Yes. Because it doesn't require an instinctive guy sometimes. So I think they thought, well, he's instinctive. We'll just tell him, don't worry about being instinctive. Just see the hole as it opens and just attack. And I think they realized with him, maybe he's one of those guys, and it happens every once in a while, really instinctive backs, sometimes they just can't not run with that instinct. They're unable to turn that off. And I think my guess is they probably saw all the physical tools, the power, tackle breaking, and thought, man, this guy would be perfect. We just have to sort of change his his sort of mental style of running and they couldn't do it. Yeah. And I, and, and that's not stunning. Um, I think the issue for him, cause I really, I, I sort of liked when they took him cause I thought, you know what? Yeah. The instincts are there, but I really thought with his aggressiveness, he would be a fit in what they did. But I think it clearly comes down to, he probably, and what you're describing, cause I didn't watch him in the preseason that much. He probably just one of those guys. He can't get away from his natural feel for, I have to make sure before I make a cut that I see where I'm going. I understand where the angles are of defenders so I can go the right place. Whereas the 49ers don't want that. Yeah. They just want you to roll. And the moment that a hole open, just yeah. attack. And that's Mitchell's that way. If Mitchell, if the hole isn't there and Mitchell has time to make an adjustment, you can see that he's, completely flustered in that in that ability to do that whereas with sermon it was and and what i think is fascinating about sermon is i would describe and if they see him that way i can understand that but i could i would also describe him as a guy who processes information very quickly so he's he he can be very creative in tight space the problem is is that like you said this isn't an offense for that and whereas with miles sanders you look at him his issues were if you put him in San Francisco, that would have been very good, I yep. think. He'd be a great fit in San Francisco. But in Philadelphia, he's been better and he's gotten progressively better, but he still has issues where it's about how do I out athlete people? Not how do I, uh, you know, what am I seeing in front of me? Whereas like backs like Jordan Howard, Boston Scott, they're all very good at, and even Kenneth Gainwell are very good at being able to make those types of diagnoses. And so maybe Sermon has a little bit more of a chance there. But the thing is, is this is my thought. Does the work that he did, you know, to try and improve cause him to be in a situation where his confidence is a little bit shot because he's he's now overthinking everything? Can he like turn off? Can he just forget what happened for the past year in San Francisco and play like he did at Oklahoma and Ohio State? Will the, uh, does does, do the Eagles even see him as as someone who can contribute at a higher level um, right now? Or do they just see him as a backup who will just see what he's got? And we were hoping to get him for like a seventh round pick before waivers hit, because that's what I would think. And so you've got two things right there. And you still have Miles Sanders, Boston Scott, Kenneth Gainwell 
on that roster. And sure, they, they also added LeMichael Pirine from the Jets onto their practice squad. So the fact that they put Sermon over Pirine, which I think is the right call, but still, the fact that they did that is somewhat promising, but it's kind of like, you know, there's a point where you have to look at talent and say, and this is what I try and tell people because they're like, so I was just expecting you to be like glowing that he got into Philadelphia. And I'm like, oh, I love the fit. But these, all these factors come into play and they outweigh talent right now. Talent is still submerged until you start seeing him get three to five carries in a game in a certain situations and perform well. And then he gets them next week. That's when you should get excited is yep. that, is that he, they, they're realizing they can rely on him. Right now they're like, let's take a chance. Am I, am I off base? No, I think what you're seeing, and it especially happens with guys that are a year or two out, not guys that are five, six, seven, because those guys are established, but a guy like him a year out or two years out that hasn't really put up production, hasn't really played a lot. When they get cut, especially guys that were picks in the first three rounds, most other teams had pretty high grades on them. Yeah. So I'm sure the Eagles are like, hey, we, we have this guy as a potential starter. We really like the skill set. We really like this. We don't know what the reason is. And I'm sure they've sniffed around and tried to talk to people in San Francisco to see what's the reason he's being cut, trying to identify was it a system fit, was there a personality, whatever it was. But they're thinking, hey, we can get this guy literally for nothing. Yeah. And we may have had a third round grade on him. So yeah. why wouldn't you roll the dice and say, okay, we trust our coaches. And hey, a month from now, you'll have a pretty good feel because if he's still there in a month, then they feel at least a little confident that what they've seen so far matches what they saw in college. If in four to six weeks they say, you know what, we're going to put him on the PR, it's it's sort of a sign of he ain't going to play for us this year, so we have to almost reprogram him and change him. It's not a good sign. But I think the thing that teams look at, especially for guys that are higher picks, is hey, we had high grades on him. And a perfect example is the Bears claim Leatherwood. And yeah. this is a guy's first round pick of the Raiders. I guarantee you at least two thirds of the teams had third round or higher grades. On. Now they may not have all had first round grades, but they still all had starter NFL grades on. And I would bet that at least probably five teams put in waiver claims on them. Um, and if he had cleared waivers, I'm sure there would have been a bidding war to get him. But I'm sure the bears looked at it and said, Hey, we probably had a, they probably had a second round grade on him or a third round grade. Polls did when he was in Kansas City. They loved him and they're thinking, hey, how many teams would pay five million bucks for an extra second round pick every year? Almost every team that cares about winning. So if all you're doing is saying, okay, we cannot claim him and get in a bidding war and maybe get him, or we claim him and say, hey, yeah, we're going to pay him five million this year. And if it doesn't work out, we blow him out. But if he's a third round talent or a second round talent, or maybe a first, if they really like them, then we're getting them for literally just money. So of course it's a smart move. So I think what you see a lot of teams do, especially teams that are bad in terms of, in yeah. terms of talent and in terms of coming off bad seasons, the ones that are well run, they look at cut down day as, Hey, are there any guys getting cut that we had big grades on either this year, if they were drafted this year or the previous year, that we at least have seen flashes of on film. It's not like Leatherwood didn't play at all. Yeah. It's not like he was the first-round pick who sat at the end of the bench. The guy started a bunch of games. Yeah. So I think it's one of those things where the smart teams are always looking 
to not only upgrade, but they're also looking, hey, if it's a year or two out, we got to trust our college guys too. It's not just about what we've seen in the NFL. If we had ridiculous grades in college, let's try to find out why. I know Bill Parcells was one of the first ones that always talked about when guys that get chosen in the first or second round are cut pretty quickly, it's at least worth bringing them in because somebody saw enough that they will invest that kind of money. Let's at least bring them in, even if just for a month, just just to take a look. I mean, what's the harm considering how hard it is to find good players? Yeah, so, I think it's a great point. And I think about a guy in the past that that I remember, I, I think I've talked about that. I think when we first met, I liked this running back. And it was Cedric Pierman who was out of UVA. Out of Virginia. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, 37. And one of the, the lessons that sent me down this kind of hole of questioning thought was watching him at UVA. He went to the Senior Bowl. You know, the, the Ravens drafted him. It was late. And it was the year that they still had McGahee. Ray Rice started to emerge that summer. He had added about 20 pounds of muscle and was showing out in camp. And Pierman got cut quickly, like very quickly. And then he passed through Cleveland. He passed through Detroit and wound up in Cincinnati. Now, Cincinnati was known, at least from a media perspective, as they were kind of cheap, you know, as, a, as an organization. They didn't have a lot of scouts. They, they kind of bare minimized a lot of stuff. Um, and he wound up there. He stuck there for a long time, became a Pro Bowl special teams caliber player. But you'd see him in the preseason and occasionally he'd flash that 4-3 speed and have a big run. He could pass, protect, he could catch, he could run for power, had a nice stiff arm too. Um, all, a lot of things I really loved about him. Always maintained this was a player who got didn't really kind of fell through the cracks a little bit. And what kind of validated my my assertion, and it may never be, may not be true. It just may be my my bias with it. But <laughs> but it's but I remember there was a stretch where the a number of the backs they kept drafting and just leaving Cedric Pierman as a as a special team stalwart got hurt, and they had to use Pierman in an NFL game or two. And he put up, I think, like 120 or 150 combined yards in a couple of games, had some scores, made some key plays, and the media asked them about him. And Jay Gruden, who had taken over as coach at that point, said, we didn't really know what we had in him. And this was like three, four years into it. And what I'm, this leads to my next question, which is really about how the NFL perceives players based on either draft capital or a label they get after a couple of years and when coaches come in and when the college scouting stuff, when you say we have to trust our college scouting group, when that kind of dies or takes less precedence and now you've got a guy like Pierman who was a, a UFA that you added one summer and has just stuck as a, as a kick return guy. But when he got on the field in a real game, he showed up in the same ways he showed up on college tape. And they go, we didn't know what he had, but they just left him on special teams anyway um, because they already had capital invested in other guys that had more expensive contracts. How much of, and this is combined with, say, like Emmanuel Acho, who I heard on a Fox network talking about, he was giving a. He was talking about Deshaun Watson with Marcellus Wiley, and that was an interesting conversation in itself that I won't get into. But they brought up getting. He said when he got cut by Cleveland and went to Philly, and he didn't have a massage therapist because 
he, you know, he was moving into town and he was trying to find somebody. And he said he was afraid to ask the Eagle staff about where to get one or if they could recommend one because he said as a UFA who had low draft capital in the first place, he was, you know, asking questions or asking favors of staff can often be met as you're too much of a too much trouble or you'll get scorned or you'll get a bad rep early because they just see you as a camp body or see you as just a guy that they don't want to they're not that invested in right now so don't bug me you, you know prove yourself first and so I, is there is and then i listen to a guy like chad span who went to pittsburgh and said he said, listen, compared to the five teams I was with in the NFL, he said, Pittsburgh, everybody came in, shook your hand, introduced themselves to you, tried to help you and coach you right away in, in camp, even if you were on the practice squad, which was a big deal still for a lot of players. But, oh, yeah. you know, it's a still, you get paid well, so it's still a big deal. But, like, he got, he said, the treatment I got there was like a cut above from some of the other teams that he had been with. Um you know, and it was there were mixed results in varying levels, but that was one of it. So, is there a classist like system, and does that influence how teams see players? Because just from a matter of risk management and economics, if we've spent millions on this one kid, you know, in the same way like Doug Marone had to ask his his coaching staff for permission to let James Robinson compete for reps in training camp to like actually compete for the starting gig or meaningful carries with Leonard Fournette on the roster. You know, to me, well, that seems common, right? Or am well, I, am there's I no doubt. Um, unfortunately, if you're chosen high, it's sort of a guarantee. You're going to get multiple chances. Yeah. I mean, Josh Rosen keeps getting signed because he's a freak of nature in terms of throwing the ball. But other than that, he's just not a very good quarterback, yeah. but yeah. So if you're a high pick on the team that shows you, you're going to get multiple chances. Whereas if you're coming in as a late rounder or a free agent, yeah, it's a very, you're walking a tightrope. And I understand what Emmanuel's saying. Like you, you feel nervous about saying, Hey, where can I get this? Where can I get that? Because although most teams don't view it as an issue, they view it as, Hey, this guy's really prepared. He wants to do it. There are some teams that'll be like, wow, he's really demanding. He's really asking a lot for a guy that we don't even know if he's going to be here. Right. I think the biggest thing I noticed, because you bring up the Cedric Pierman, is unless a guy is a high pick, one of the things they run into, until they actually get in a regular season, even a preseason game, and just dominate, like have a huge game, coaches for whatever reason, and executives too, both on the, like GMs and scouts too, even if you see a guy in practice, like a Pierman, do a really good job, if you've got a guy ahead of him who's produced, a lot of coaches are very hesitant to say, you know, I trust what I'm seeing. I think Pierman's a better player than the guy who's been our starter. Because Pierman's an undrafted guy, or drafted but been cut a few times, whereas our guy's been in the league, he started for a while, and it's practice. So they look at it sort of like I talked about, like you have to be cautious about practice. Coach is like, well, he looks good in practice, but you know what? He's never been the guy. And one so they, play can, and one bad play can hurt, can kill your teams in that, that yes, week. exactly. And they feel, well, we know, and the other rule of thumb, and you'll hear coaches talk about it all the time is, the reason the best player doesn't always make the team or always start is it's easier to coach a lesser player who does everything the same every single snap. Even if it's not great, it's easier to coach because you know exactly what to coach. Whereas the guy who may be much more talented but is so inconsistent, 
it's very hard to coach that guy because you don't know if every play he's going to do the job. That's why guys like there's a center in the league named A.J. Quigley yes. for Arizona. A.J. was like 5'11". He was not a big guy, but he kept sticking in the league and started a bunch of games because even though he was a little and he wasn't a phenomenal athlete, you knew his limitations and you knew what he could do, what he would would not be able to do every snap, and he did it exactly the same every play. And I don't mean that as a knock. I mean that as a great compliment yeah. in that he was very reliable. So you can understand if you have a running back and you're, whether it's a, if you looked at a guy like a Melvin Gordon, you know what you're getting with Melvin every single game. He's going to miss some holes because he's not a naturally instinctive guy. He will run into the back of his blockers at times. But if there's a crease, he is going to hit that thing at 400 miles an hour and he can outrun angles and he has actually much better hands. And I think people give him credit for coming out of school because he caught like 13 balls in college, if right. I remember the number correctly. Yeah. But you know what you're getting. There's very little waiver in terms of the median or I don't know how you want to say it is like this. There's not much out here. He's right in there. Whereas when you get guys that are late round picks, they don't get the chance to play in games a lot. So they don't get a chance to prove their consistency. So they get a few snaps here, a few snaps there. And you're not going to trust the little glimpses you see when they're wearing, they're not even wearing full pads in practice. They're just in shells and helmet. They may look great, but how much courage do you have as a coach to say, oh, this, this kid that we got in the seventh round that has had three carries in his career looks super quick and agile when we're wearing shells and helmets. Are we going to bench our four-year veteran who's been really productive, even if he's not a star. And that definitely plays a role. And that's part of the reason I love the fact that this year it's 16 because they're still continuing with the COVID rules. But even if it wasn't, the CBA from this season forward for the remainder of the 10-year CBA is 14. So even after the COVID rules go away, there will be 14 guys on the practice roster, less veteran spots, more opportunity for these young undrafted guys to stick around. And finally, when someone's injured or maybe in a preseason game, they actually get 20 touches to show the coach, okay, what you've seen in the flashes in practice is enough for me to say, I feel comfortable with you in a game. Because that's why you see a number of guys do bounce around from team to team because they just never do enough to where the coach says, and I don't mean do enough when they're given the chance. They don't even get that chance to do enough right. to where the coach feels comfortable saying, um, you're my guy. Yeah. So because of that, they lose the battles all the time. Yeah, it's a dual-edged sword. And I think it's great to look at it from this holistic perspective because, you know, former SMMW student of yours, Ryan Riddle, you know, he, he wrote a wonderful article I always reference that's called The Hidden Advantage of Being a High Draft Pick. And talking about from his experiences because he talked about the potential for bias that comes that a, a low round guy or a UDFA guy may get, you know, a fifth of the reps of a high round pick. And, and the coaches will look and see, like, you can look at it mathematically. So you can look at it mathematically and say, the low round pick gets three reps on this, on this look today. The other guy gets nine. The guy who got nine made three mistakes. And the, and the coach says, it's okay. Or the GM, the coach, the scout, the head of scouting, whoever the people are observing go, it's okay. He's going to figure it out. He's talented. Whereas the other guy may make the same mistake only once out of three and have two shining plays. And they go, see, I told you he can't play. 
but it's like so there's the risk of that end of the bias and you could talk about never knowing what they have because they get few opportunities in meaningful situations and when they do they can they have to be far more perfect you know far better on a consistent play-to-play basis but at the same time what you brought up is is also very important to look at it from the coaches and the GM's perspective, which is like, look, one play can cost us. And am I going to risk that? Am I going? It's the same thing about management when you say, look, if I take a chance on this 5'9", 205-pound running back with two ACL tears who played at Villanova in the first round, I don't care if my scouts say he could be a top five overall pick. I'm waiting until at least the second or third round. To, to get this guy. Well, well, a perfect example, because everybody likes to point to, I think it was a three-cone with DK Metcalf. Yeah. And I, and I think you and I have talked about it before, is that the media, for whatever reason, portrays the three-cone as the reason he slid to the second round. When the reality is what you just mentioned, the numbers of the number of receivers who started the number of games that DK did in college, had the number of catches and the number of yards, and missed as many games as he did, the number of those receivers ever who became three-year starters in the NFL is zero. There you go. So NFL teams look at that and say, yeah, that's a really risky first-round pick. That's a, for a guy who's missed more games than he played. Yeah. Do I take that guy in the first? So, And the thing you mentioned, and, and Ryan, I, I didn't know he'd written that article. It makes perfect sense. I remember grading Ryan coming out of school at fifth, number 57 at Cal. I remember grading him, and he was a heck of a player. Is the excuses made when you have a first or a second round pick who looks awful yeah. on the field, you will give them every opportunity. And and at the same time, there's something to that. I was I remember speaking to a scout for the Ravens when Ozzy was the GM, and I was talking to him about, and you may remember, I can't even remember the name of the receiver, but they had drafted a big receiver in the fifth round, and this is about five or six years ago, out of Elon University. Oh yes, I can't. Uh, the Rams. I thought there. that was the Rams who who did that out of Elon. Was that the, maybe the? Rams yeah, it was the Rams. Rams. It was the Rams with Vermeil. Yeah, was it? No, or no, not this Vermeil. Marts or oh, Marts. But this is a big kid. I can't remember his name. Went to the, was a draft pick of the Ravens. He was like fifth or sixth round of a small school. Yeah, okay. And they drafted him, and I remember calling because I didn't like his what I saw in training camp dropped about half the balls thrown his way. And I remember talking to those scout and he said, yeah, he said, if all were even and we were just looking at what they've done since they walked in our building, he said, he wouldn't even go to our training camp. Wow. He said, but our organization has a philosophy, he said that is proven true over and over, which is we invest a lot of time and money scouting. We invest a lot of time and money in scouting meetings. We, any player we draft is getting a full year. During the that we're going to give him OTAs, we're going to give him a season, and we're going to give him another OTAs to see if he can start improving. Yeah. If he looks bad, does he get better? Because there is something we saw in the kid that made us take him. Yeah. And I thought that's a very smart philosophy because you don't want to just give up on kids. But at the same time, that also puts that target squarely on those undrafted guys because they can outperform somebody every single day in training camp and not have any chance of making the team because teams are going to say, hey, we invested time and money. We drafted this kid. We are not giving up on him. 
unless they determine, hey, we missed on the athletic traits. Yeah, and one, and it's on the opposite end of the scale when you look at it from the coaches and the GMs. And you know, listen, a mistake in a game that leads to a lost a lost game. Every game counts in terms of your job. And yep. so there's a ton of pressure that way. In the same way there's a ton of pressure for a UDFA, it's just from opposite ends. And, it, and the way the game is structured creates this kind of, you, you know, yeah. loggerheads in terms of that you're not always going to pick the best talent because of the way the things are set up in terms of who's going to be there. And you're going to have to roll with some of that. And the same thing goes with like, you brought up the whole drum beats and how the games can change things. Tyson Williams was a back I really liked as like, he was like ranked ninth or 10th a couple years ago on my board as a guy that I thought if he could find an opportunity as a UDFA, he could perform well. He's smart. He's played in multiple systems. BYU loved him when he transferred from South Carolina. He was a five-star prospect um, and picked and um, signed at North Carolina first, but jumped to a couple teams, played well wherever he was at, but he in South Carolina they had this rotation of a lot of talented backs, so he wound up he could catch, he could run for power, he had decent speed, all this. Comes into Ravens camp during the COVID year, gets signed late in August. They put him in a scrimmage 24 hours later, demonstrated the the, the intelligence to not make any mistakes, run for good yardage, know the system. Mark Ingram was like, this kid's very impressive. Um, for a guy who literally just, just signed, showed, up. showed up, okay? Like, he led the scrimmage. And so so they were like, okay, they signed him to their futures list, practice squad. He was there for a year. Next training camp, plays really well, works his way up the roster. Then they have the injuries to their two backs ahead of him, Gus Edwards and J.K. Dobbins. He gets the start in Oakland. First couple of series for... Breaks a touchdown, has a beautiful long run, great decision, hits it hard, all of that. In the second half of that game, I I don't know what happened. I almost would want to guess that somebody said, if if there's anything you do, make sure you do not fumble that football. Oh, yeah. Hold on yeah. to that football. And that's because the last, the, the, the death knell. And he literally... That in the second half, he was so concerned about carrying the ball. It was like he was doing this and <laughs> and the rest of the game had passed him by. And for the next three weeks, he just sank down that depth chart and, and ended up cut at the end of the season and was cut by the Colts um, late in the year. And he, ne and he just overthank, overthunk everything. And, and you could see... That's the difference between preseason game because I even hear John Harbaugh in the late in the preseason they had him mic'd up and he as as, as um, Williams comes off the field after scoring a touchdown in the preseason on a beautiful run he said man I love watching you run the football and just like pat him on the butt and send him off and you're thinking okay this is this is a kind of exciting keeper this yeah. is a keeper by the end of the first half of the Raiders game in hindsight you look at it and go. He lost every mental edge performance-wise but trying to make sure that he didn't do anything to lose his standing on the team, and and it was yep. over. And th and that's the hardest thing is, is, is people don't realize how fine the line is. It's like and, – and I will say there is some gamesmanship. There are definitely veterans who know how to play it, and they'll – if they see a young guy starting to excel, they'll go over and they'll find a way to get in his head. Yeah. I mean, they'll find a way to get him. I'm trying to help thing. you. I'm yeah, trying to help oh, you. Yeah. I mean, 
this is not that the, the thing that I remember learning early on when I worked in this business is it's not college football. You're all on the same team. You all want to win. But in the NFL, it's about, hey, these are these are adults with families and kids and mortgages and schools. And if you think the veteran, if his job is on the line, is going to be helping you, don't think that. Now, does that mean that all teammates are going to screw everybody else? No. no. If the guys that are established and they, they've got their situation, they're probably going to do that and help you. But the guys where every year it's they're 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 coming down every year. They're hoping that phone doesn't ring, and even if they're four or five years in, they still know they're a minimum guy and struggling to make a team. Those are the guys that you got to you got to sometimes just like punters and kickers. You always got to worry what they're saying because yeah. it's one on one battle. Yeah. And if those, those veterans will do anything to get in a rookie punter's head. And at these days, if you're a running back who had a starting gig in a couple of places and now you're 27, 28, 30, 31, and you need this for you, you yep. need this money and you know that you're not the cheapest option, but they brought yep. you in in case this young guy flops. Yeah, you, you. I think that makes total sense. It's just like corporate America where you have people who do dysfunctional things because they feel like they have to show folks that they're the star or that yep. they're the one that needs to be counted on um, even though so that just because they want to think, well, if we ever have cut, you know, we ever have layoffs, you know, if they, we have a bad year, who who's going to be higher on the list to keep? You know, people yep. think that way. And, oh yeah, and, and you know, and because they think that way, you'll see some you'll see some really dirty workplace practices that way. So I could oh, totally yeah. imagine. I'm not going to name any names, but there were a couple backs on that Raven squad who fit that description in terms of like what their situations were and what their past was in terms of how good they once were, and now they're seen as older guys who can be helpful, but. We're paying them a little bit more money because they are veterans compared to compared to this UDFA who's like rocketed up the depth chart. You yep. know? And, and I will, and yeah. I will say the, the other thing, totally aside from that, because we're talking about undrafted guys and opportunities that, that I always found unique is there are certain organizations that whether it's claiming guys from other teams or signing undrafted guys, they really put such an emphasis on special teams that they don't just look at the roster and say, okay, we're going to, we're all roster decision tiebreakers. We're going to go with the special teams guy. There are certain teams, and I think the Patriots are probably one of the great examples. And this started back many, many years ago with the Redskins when um, Wayne Severe was their special teams coach and Joe Gibbs was a head coach. And Joe would always tell Coach Severe, Yes, we know you're going to have your punter and your kicker and your snapper, but you get three guys who come to camp. You pick whatever three you want. They're on the team. No matter what, even if they are the three worst of the 120 that come to training camp, because back then I don't think they had limits on the training camp rosters. And I, from what I've read, I've never asked him about the Patriots, but from what I've read, the, the Patriots go with a four-man. The best four special teams guys make the team. So obviously Slater, that's sort of chalked up. And I guess they have two or three others that are sort of locked in. But this year, an undrafted kid won the fourth job. So you want, as an agent, you need to do your job and know which are the teams that say, if you are one of the two or three or four best teams, guys, you make the team. Because that's where you want to send your guy that may not be a great running back or may not be a great receiver, but this guy is a great gunner. And it can be a returner, 
and is willing to be a blocker, whatever it may be, that that's the other side of the undrafted free agent that doesn't get talked enough about is it's not just winning the bottom of your roster battle for your position, but are you good enough to actually win a job on special teams because you're so good on teams without having any position spot? Yeah, that's a great point. And that's that that's awesome. That's awesome information. Listen, this was this was probably my favorite conversation of the summer on a oh, podcast. Good. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I think that I, I think this is a must listen for the for, for our readers and and you know you can you can find you know well you know Russ Landy is the head of you know US Scouting at the Montreal Alouettes. You can find him on Twitter at Russ Landy. You can find me at Mount Waldman. And uh, you know, if you're interested in projections and dynasty rankings that are updated throughout the year, you can go to mountwaldman.com and you can dot and pay $24.95. You get a spreadsheet that's updated monthly by team tab that you know gives you fantasy projections for all the skill players at each team, as well as a win now and a and a long build cheat sheet that's tiered by you know, has different tiers with talent. Of course, if you're more interested in what we've been talking about right now, there is the rookie scouting portfolio, which, you know, provides you, you know, rankings and in-depth commentary on players. Which I just want to add, and I know Matt and I are friends, so obviously I'm biased, but I've been doing this a long friggin' time from back in 94 with the Rams all the way through all my trials and tribulations of scouting, whatever. And, and I've said this before, Matt, there are very, very few people that have never worked for a team that understand the intricacies involved with evaluating players. There are a lot of people in the media that work hard, that watch the game and they take notes about how fast they are and how strong they are. But I don't know if I've ever seen somebody other than maybe some position coaches and some of the, the guys like the Mike Martz and stuff that get into the nitty gritty detail like Matt does. So if you are a person who wants to learn about now, I'm not saying ask Matt about DBs because nope. he ain't doing Don't, that. Nope. <laughs> but, but, but for skill positions, if you want to learn about it and learn about the details, I'm telling you, I get when Matt's book comes every year, I don't really worry about his rankings because most of those guys go into the NFL, but I read almost every report just because he talks about things. Every year there's something in some report that I say, God dang, I never, ever thought about that when I've been scouting. Thank you. And I always keep a little list on my thing of here's what I got to look at. And I always add in at least once a year something from Matt's book that I say, oh, I should be paying more attention to this or I should pay attention. So if you are a fan of football and you want to know not just the fluff on the games and you want to know the nitty gritty about the skill positions, you got to get the RSP. The thing is truly amazing. Man, how many steak dinners do I owe you now? That's all I have. <laughs> No, thank you very much, and I appreciate it. And, and and listen, you know, it's I've learned a lot from Russ over the years. I've picked his brain over the years when we've gotten a chance to meet up, and you know, just try and soak as much in as I can. You just try and keep working and improving, and you know, that's why I try and deliver to, to to my readers. So hopefully, here's to another fifteen or twenty years of being able to do that, um, and maybe even just in retirement anyway, just for kicks. We'll see. Yeah, exactly. But uh, you know, <laughs> we're gonna we'll be back in a couple weeks to have another uh, conversation along these lines and talk about the NFL and talk about football in general and the mechanics and talk about some players probably too down the line here um, and, and as we start getting more into the season of who we scouted. So thanks again for listening.
And you can, you know, follow us at any format that you download podcasts. Um, you can check out Matt Waldman's RSP Film Room. Um, and that's a YouTube channel that I'm actually creating a video scouting glossary of terms that I use when I evaluate players. That'll be probably a two-year, two, three-year project, but I'll be putting things out <laughs> every week. Thanks again. Have a good week.